change of pace. If you can't read in the back, it says apocalypse scenario number 253. Everyone just sort of gives up one day. <laughs> and it's a guy laying on the roof. It's a guy laying on the ground. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about um, all the different apocalyptic scenarios that we might picture. And a lot of those are dark. If you Google apocalypse you might not want to look at those Google search results. Um, plus, we also came through a pandemic. It was dark times, y'all. I th a lot of people really struggled. Uh, I, so I didn't want to quite give you all of that imagery right now, but I, I want to ask you a real question about yourself. At, at what point, church, do you panic? At what point in time do you break kind of from the, the niceties, the status quo, the civilization that, that, that we know, the rule of law in our land? At what point in time do you yourself have a threshold that you cross and you do things that are out of character for you, things you never imagined you would do. You know, when you've been hungry for 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, when there's no food in the grocery stores, when the gas is, is dry, what do you do? When you have had no toilet paper in your house for the past week, do you go and steal some? You know, I believe that we all probably have thresholds that we don't know about, right? Where we will act uncharacteristically like ourselves. And I, I think um, one of the, the benefits of the pandemic is, is we got a mirror held up to our faces. You know, we got to kind of see ourselves and, and see there's some cracks here. You know, we, we can only really go so far until, you know, maybe we don't love our neighbors as much as we thought. Maybe we're more selfish than we thought. Maybe, maybe there, there's limits to these things that we kind of accepted as a status quo. As, as you know, I can always count on this. We got to kind of look behind the, the covers and, and see oh, there's some work to do. Where things are not maybe as, as wrapped up as, as we thought we might. So running out of toilet paper wasn't enough for me to forget the rule of law. <laughs> but I think that there's a point in time that we all might be able to realize where the gloves come off when we think the rules no longer apply. You know, when maybe you turn on the water faucet and there's, there's nothing coming out any longer. And the water's been poisoned and, and we realize we have to do something else to make this happen. What point in time do we change from our comfortable beds and our, our chairs and our, our, our easy chairs and our recliners and, and, and take action to do something different? Who are we then? I say this not as an as a illustration, really, but as an exercise in humility for us. All right? To think about we have thresholds, we have marks where we say enough is enough. And to realize that, that forgiveness is an easy concept until I've been unjustly wronged. And then it feels like an awfully high price to pay, to say, I forgive you. Generosity is a great concept until my cupboard is bare. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I can't give my last bit of bread. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the, the first bit of bread whenever I, I have a whole healthy store myself, right? We, we have these things. So take this not as a conviction, but as an exercise in humility. Please know this. I believe everybody in this room has a threshold where you would do things that are uncharacteristic. If a person wronged you, if a person hurt you, if, if things happened around you, at what point in time do things break? Leah did such a, a great job last week setting up the series that we have on parables. But I'm going to dive right in and go with an extreme example. <laughs> so there's a whole lot of parables that, that are, are, are pretty wonderful. But the, the parable that I'm going to share for us right now, it's a bit of a bold example. 
Um, it's perhaps the closest we get to allegory. She said parables are not allegories. That is true. This is probably the closest we get to allegory. This is perhaps the most blunt that we have where Jesus is speaking to his audience in pretty clear terms who he's talking about, and they know it at the end, <laughs> and they realize that he's, they're talking about the Pharisees here. But I, I want to revisit just a few of the core concepts she said last week, just so we can get a refresher, so we know what we're, we're getting into here. One thing that I, I love about parables is that I feel like they're self-sufficient. Because if a parable is really all that you hear, I feel like you've had enough. It's not that, that, that parables are, are formulaic with an invitation and a breakdown of the gospel, and it has these things in like this nice little package that you can look at and see all these things. But I, I like to imagine that there's people who maybe heard about this teacher Jesus, and they thought, oh, I want to go hear him speak. And so they left their, their towns, and they, they wondered to find him to hear he's over here. So they go over there, and they, they search for him, and they're hungry, and they've been looking, and they want to hear this great teacher speak. And he gets there, and he says to them something like, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And that was it. <laughs> and then they're left going, that, that's it? <laughs> I came here for this? And the answer I like to imagine is yes. Because that parable tells you something. It tells you about where to look. It, it tells you about the feeling of this thing. You know, you're looking for this dramatic inbreaking. You're looking for all these, these things. That, and maybe it's not like that. Maybe this is the slow growth of the kingdom. Maybe I can find the Holy Spirit moving and revealing and, and doing things now. And, and the more that you sit with that parable, the more that you think, what was he trying to say? The Holy Spirit begins revealing things to you. And you can look at yourself in that mirror and you realize, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I needed to hear. There's an invitation to follow. There's an invitation to the gospel. There, there's the, this call that as the Holy Spirit leads us, we have a self-sufficient call to Christ. I like it because I feel like it's appropriate to only have that little bit and to be invited into more. I, I had a brief period, and I really wish it wasn't just a, a brief period, where I tried to stop preaching with answers and, and I, I was just going to tell stories and ask questions. You may remember that. Um, some people came to me with the answers, and I thought, oh, no, I need to preach some answers, too. <laughs> but, but it's this wonderful exercise, I think, right, on, on realizing the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us through this. I, I, you know, the more I read the Bible, the more I read about Israel, the more that I see Israel meaning God's struggler. We're given stories and pictures, and we're invited to mold this over. We're, we're invited to kind of wrestle with the reality and wrestle with the gospel at the same time. To say, Lord, where are you in this place? Where are you in this society? Where are you in, in culture today? We need you. We need you, and when things don't add up, where can I find you? And that's the invitation to follow Christ, is to be a God wrestler. To not satisfy, to not be satisfied with the ways of this world, the answer that this world will give you, and to keep coming to the, to the cross. Keep saying, but Lord, there's something in my soul that cries out for more. And I know, I know I was made for more than this. I know I was made more for more than a nine-to-five job. I know I was made more than to just forget about my, my sorrows in a cup of coffee and then watch TV for eight hours. I know there's more. Where is it? Because this is all that life is, is promising me. This is all it's giving me. Where is that more? 
And that's the, the, the struggle. That's what we see when we come to the gospel. That's the invitation to see that the leaven is being worked through and there's more coming out. Parables are also very portable. Sermons can take a while, as you may find this morning, but hopefully not. You know, but there's research, there's references, there's application, there's stories, there's anecdotes, all these things we do to try to, to help people. A parable is just that. It's the story that leaves you struggling, asking, applying. With all that said, uh, there's often a tradition here that, that we may or may not know, and what I mean by that is that there's history, there's context, there's culture, right? That whenever Jesus spoke these parables, you know, maybe you're not a farmer. And so that the, the farming metaphors go over your head, you know. Maybe there's these things that, that he's referring to in scripture that we don't quite, quite pick up on. And that's where it's good to see that. But I find that those traditions, that that context kind of colors in the lines better, makes the story pop. But there's still so much in there that you don't actually always need that. But they help. Apparently there's a, a rabbinic tradition around the prodigal son story that portrays their legalistic judgment understand God. So when Jesus began telling that parable, which I won't get into today, but it, it kind of left them expecting the story to go a certain way, and then he subverted their expectations, right? So it takes this story, he takes this teaching device, this, this expectation, this retelling of it, and then he gives you something else. Like imagine if I started telling you the, the story of the boy who cried wolf, right? You know that story, you know, that there's this boy who was lying all the time, thought it was funny, and he's, he's crying wolf, and everybody comes out, and he laughs at them. Ha ha, you, you thought there was a wolf, you know, not a great joke, but, you know, you can understand the humor of it. And so, you know, and then the, the story goes right, like what, right? That he cries wolf when a wolf comes out? Yeah? But now imagine that the father who loved the son heard in his voice, and he came to his son's aid. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> we didn't go where I thought. I, th I thought that this is where the wolf came and ate all the sheep and everything was, was terrible because nobody could believe the boy anymore. That's the lesson you know. But instead we get left with this idea of maybe the father's love is the thing that we should understand. Maybe there's something else going here. Christ sometimes does that. And it's beautiful and profound. But you, you don't always need it. So parables are not complex. Not really. All right, Parables are not complex. That's not their intent. They're not meant to be like this, this hidden thing that you have to really dig at and try to, you need you know, masters in, in theology to try to discern the meaning of all these things. That, that's not it. That's not the struggling that we're talking about. They're challenging. They're confrontational. They're compulsive. I gave you three C's and I didn't even mean to. <laughs> it's in me somewhere. But if we reduce a parable to a lesson, to a takeaway. It's incomplete because a parable is meant to draw you in. It, it, it's meant to, to be something that you sit with and struggle with and you muse over, that you think over, that, that you, you just think there's more to this. I, I know that there's a reason for this. Where am I in that? Where's Lord in this? Where, where does this story apply to me? They're simple though and it's tempting to, to reduce this to a lesson and walk away thinking, oh, I already know about that one. I already know about the progress. I already know about the four souls. I, I, I've already got that one down pat. I don't need to come back to it. Making them a casual lesson is the opposite role of the parables. You know, I, I laugh at, at, uh, at my earlier self and, uh, and the way that, that I really thought that there was often a, a very quick answer to these complex problems. You know, because it, it's, it's, it's tempting. Like, well, yeah, the gospel is love. 
done, check, move on to the next, right? What, what, Jesus, he, he reduces the entire Old Testament, right? Love the Lord your God and your neighbor, you know, you, oh, okay, got it, check, done. Oh my goodness. Do we actually know what it is to even do the first of those, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength? Have any of us actually gotten past that one? And if you, and if you think you have, have you gotten past loving your neighbor as yourself? Like, we could spend all of our time just on those, and that's time well spent, right? We make it this more complex. We make it the systematic theology. We, we, we write these big books trying to go deep and academic with all these things because there is a depth, because there is a beauty in, in having this knowledge and this wisdom, and that's good. But I'm still struggling with this. The bare beauty of loving the Lord my God, how that is actually freedom for my soul, how that is actually life well lived, how that actually satisfies me against, amidst all the troubles, all the turmoils, all the suffering, all the grief, how somewhere in that is a well-lived life. And I skip over it because I think there's got to be more. There's, there, there's got to be more to it than that. But why do we worship for so long in this church compared to some of the other places? Why, why is this a, a part of what we do? Well, because we're still working on that first commandment. And we still have the second one to go. <laughs> and the, thankfully, they're not one at a time. It's personal. It's not academic. Parables are for everyone. They're for normal people. They're for you and they're for me. They're not for theologians. They're not for masters of theology. They're not for those who, who have the, this greater understanding. For the simplest of those. For the most complex of those. The lesson's the same. The call is the same. We, in this day and age, we have such an academic approach to things. We really do. To our, our detriment rather than experiential. If we, if we would come and experience God, if we would come and experience grace, forgiveness, if we, if we would come and experience love rather than trying to study love as if we were a scientist, it would hit your soul in a different way. What if you came to church not to learn, but to be loved? What, what if you came and you opened the scripture, you, you opened the parables, not to learn something about the character of God, but to experience something about the nature of God? How much would that change the way you open the word? How much would that change the way that you come into this room and how you interact with the people around you? This is what parables do. It's not trying to teach you this deep this lesson that, that only the wisest of us can actually discern. You have to have, listen, I, I went to school for this. Let me tell you about the Greek. You know, like what if we came in here and just allowed the love of the Lord to wash over us in a simple lesson? So let's jump right in. I'm going to give you the parable of the wicked tenants. There you go. After all that setup about love and experience, I'm going to give you perhaps the most blunt, one of the, the hardest ones that, that I, I think there might be. Um, this is a, a parable that's in the Synoptic Gospels. It's also in the Gospel of Thomas. It's Mark 12, 1 through 12, Luke 20, 9 through 19. But the context of it is always the same. This is Jesus in Jerusalem during Holy Week. I love Holy Week because I feel like this is where Christ was in that mode of letting everybody know what's really happening. He was about business. You know, he knew the end was coming. He, he knew what was going on. It's like, what, what am I going to say to my people during this time? I know I don't have much left. How can I make this clear? How, how can I lead them where they need to go? How can I leave them with what they need so that whenever I'm gone, they'll be able to continue in the love of God. They'll be able to keep going. Holy Week's amazing for that. 
It's when he cleans the temple, right? It's when he sets things right. He can't take this anymore. It's, it's almost like I was saying in the beginning, right? He hit that threshold of saying, I can't walk by the temple any longer and tolerate this. I only have a week left. Stop it. <laughs> Stop the, the money changing. Stop the financial gain. Stop these games you're playing as if the, this were somehow a financial investment. We're meeting the Lord in this place. Get things right. This is called the parable of the tenants or the wicked tenants. I really don't like that title because I feel like if any parable does this, this parable gives us something more interesting. It gives us perspective from the father's point of view. It allows us to see things maybe as he did. But let's jump into this and read this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it and he built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent more servants to them, more than the first time. The tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. He will give him the, 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 his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Like I said, we're going to jump into a pretty blunt and severe example here. Just to, uh, to give you some of that context that I said exists, the whole beginning of this parable is Isaiah 5. Like if, if you know your scriptures, if, if you're familiar with this, as people in this temple at this time probably were, they hear him talking about the, this king who has a vineyard, and he sets up this wall around this. That's Isaiah 5. Like he's, he's just about quoting it all together, but he subverts it. Isaiah 5 doesn't end up in that place. Isaiah 5 is this judgment against the vineyard for not producing fruit. It says this, What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? The problem was the vineyard wasn't producing the way that it should. That's where people expected this to go. Just kind of like this, this what's going on here? Like, why is the vineyard not producing great, great fruit here? But what he says here is there are these wicked tenants. He's changing it from the, this almost conjecture, this more, I've done everything that I can to love this. I've done everything I can to prepare for this. And he's pointing the finger rather pointedly at people. He's saying, there's some wicked tenants who are actually taking, who are usurping, who are working in a way against the ways of God. In all of the Gospels, it's always followed by this quote from Psalm 18. I'm going to start in verse 15 for context for this. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. 
The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live. And will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, joining the feast procession up to the horns of the altar. What an appropriate thing for Jesus to be reading and what to, for him to be quoting in Holy Week. What an amazing thing. He, he knew what he was doing. There's a reason that these things are coming together. This isn't just like, oh, there's some scripture somewhere that says something like, there's context that colors in those lines that makes you realize he's talking about the fact that he will live again. He's talking about a revelation that we can actually see coming through this gate, the kingdom of God, as it was meant to be. And yet what? And yet this rock is in the way and that it's going to crush people. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a right setting of things. I, I hate to tell you this. I really do hate to tell you this. But there's a pun involved as well. <laughs> so in Hebrew, if you don't know, the, the, the ongoing joke is that every pun I hear shortens my life by five minutes. You all have shortened my life by years. <laughs> I get puns sent to me through text, through email. It's, it's terrible. Puns are the lowest form of humor, if you don't know. However, Jesus seems to love a good pun. So who am I to question our Lord? Uh, in Hebrew, ben means son, and eben means stone. And the Hebrews really did love their, their plays on words. So the, the Targum, which is the Aramaic commentary on Psalm 18, says, the son which the builders rejected. This is pre-Christianity. The writings about this said, the son which the builders rejected. This proved problematic for some Jewish traditions to try to reconcile that once the Christian faith came into light. and Everybody's like, oh, you're talking about Jesus. They're like, well, hold up. <laughs> it's what they have. Because the, the word is actually very clear in there whenever they, they talk about this being the son versus the rock. And the rabbis had the custom of referring to themselves as the builders. This is on the nose in a way as few things are. Like, like the Pharisees were not making a, a jump to say, oh, he's talking about us. No, he's talking about them. <laughs> it was a really clear thing that, that this was a judgment against the Pharisees, against the way that they were approaching him. And, and they heard this and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to stop him from doing this because he's subverting their way of thinking. He's subverting their way of extending their rule and their reign. And, and you know, we, we think of Pharisees in the way that we understand it now, which is like a hypocritical person in religion. This, this was the, the leaders of, of teaching. They, they, they knew stuff. They understood the law in a way that, that the common people did not. They were people who were well-known. They were informed. They were smart. They were in positions of power and influence. I think there's something that, that, that comes up every time that this parable is used. It's this question of the father sending his son. He says whenever he goes to send his son, I will send my son, right? 
perhaps they'll listen to him. And, and people take from this, this idea that, that maybe perhaps Jesus didn't have to die. Maybe there was another way. And this is where we're going to lean again into the parable versus the allegory, and kind of how this thing kind of plays out. It's a mistake to ignore this, all right? It's a mistake to ignore this, and, and, and it's also a mistake to make it mean everything and to reframe your theology based on this parable. Both of those things have to be held at the same point in time. I think it's overly dismissive to think that Christ didn't have to die because his sacrifice was made knowingly and intentionally. He's made that abundantly clear throughout the Gospels as, as, as the entire Old Testament kind of testifies about the, the Messiah coming, what's to come. It was made knowingly and intentionally. I also think, though, that it's harmful to put the onus of the sacrifice on the Father as if he wanted or desired the blood of his Son. That's not the plan. Was he sent to die? Yes, he was sent willing to die. But when a soldier goes off to war, is the point of sending a soldier off to war for him to die? No. It's because there's a battle that has to be fought. Because there's a work that has to be accomplished. Because, because we can't stand idly by and watch injustice happen. Because we can't stand idly by and say, oh, you know what, things happen. Whatever, you know, I I guess things are going to be. There's a threshold that these things pass when somebody has to be willing to do something about it. When we're going to say, I cannot tolerate this any further. And even if it costs me myself, even if it costs me everything I have to this point in time, I'm going to set things right. And I believe that the, the son knew exactly what he was getting into. But yet he didn't want to die. And the father wasn't demanding the blood of his son. We see, though, we cannot forget Christ in the garden where he prays, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. It wasn't that he desired death. It wasn't that his father desired to see him die. But humanity exacted this price. We demanded this with our pride, with our hubris. We demanded this with uh, the way that we have just exalted sin. The way that, that we have said, this is okay. This is the way we act down here. Yeah, we, we do stuff by violence. Yeah, we're greedy. But it's, it's understandable, right? The king gave me this vineyard, then he's been gone. I've been working in this vineyard. You expect me to just send him the, the, the fruit from it? I'm the one who did this work. It's logical that that I should be able to keep what I've earned, correct? Where is he anyway? He's been gone for a long time. And so we we have this logic that we apply to these things thinking, oh, it'll be fine. This is just the way we we do things around here. You go to a new job. You learn the ways of working, right? And and maybe they kind of rub you the wrong way, but then after a little bit of time, it's like, oh, well, that's just how we do things around here. Who who, who am I to to speak against the system that we already have? You know, it's already been working for, for so long. Humanity took Christ's life, not the Father. Sin put him on the cross, not the Father's goodness. And that is what this parable underscores. It underscores the sinful nature of humanity that demanded the blood of the Son. Why? Because we couldn't see another system. We cannot imagine that there's a better way. I want that inheritance. (laughs) I want this good life. There's something in my soul that's crying out. There's something in me that is saying, I know I was made for more than this. And whenever this guy comes and he's preaching about the good life, whenever I hear about eternal life, when I hear all that stuff, I'm going to get what's mine some way or another. 
And whether that's building my empire so that I can have influence, whether it's, it's building the stuff that people will, will give and support this ministry, whether it's the way that we can use our words to try to enact and change and, and try to make these things happen, denying the, the horrors, denying the allegations, denying the brokenness around us, denying grief. We're building an alternate kingdom. It's a thiefdom and not the kingdom of God because the son came to serve and to offer his life. And what do we do in his wake? Are we continuing in the ways of Jesus or in the ways of this world? This is a hard parable, y'all, because it causes us to look at ourselves. It causes us to see ourselves and put ourselves in this picture. We can either skip over this and say, oh, well, that's to the Pharisees. I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee. You know, that, that's to those people then. Thank God that's not true any longer. It is for us here today. This is something that if we are blind to, if we ignore, the Father will not be blind to. The Father will not ignore. We demanded his blood then. And are we still continuing to do violence against the kingdom of God? Are we continuing to rejoice in greed and sloth? Or are we actually able to accept the ways of the kingdom? Which is grace and peace and forgiveness or are those offensive to us if you look at and you find the most offensive person to you and if you can believe that christ died for them at their worst he offered his hand to the person who you disagree with politically the person who has called you nasty names who has wronged you the person who is the most offensive to you for whatever reason can you see them by the grace of the lord or do you think, he died for me, but not for him? Are we doing violence still to the kingdom of God? A few things are clear here. The tenants are greedy and selfish. They don't respect the ownership of the king. We may sing the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but we sure have made ourselves at home here. We treat this like it's our home. We treat it like we, we deserve this. We treat it like, like we can chop this up and, and, and parcel it out and, and claim my stake and my ownership here and try to give it through my inheritance so that, that my kids are going to be secure and I'm just going to use this world for my own ends. That's the ways of the world. That makes sense. Or do we actually believe that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? That we are tenants who are trusted with this for the goodness of all of his creation, that we can give it back to him. And him being a good king will take care of all of us in the way that will be done. We treat it like we deserve it, like we own it. The tenants believe that their presence, their work was the most important thing. What is the point of a king? This is a real question. I know now, now we no longer have a queen. There's a king. But we live in a post-kingdom democracy. You know, my, my go-to Examples of kings are from movies and, you know, from the UK where the monarchy is more of a figurehead maybe than, than anything else. But in my more critical moments, I, I think of the arguments that, that, that Samuel gave to the people. You know, you don't want a king. King's going to collect taxes from you and send your sons off to war. Like, like, that's what I think of as a king. But the Israelites said puzzlingly to me, we want a king. And if that's not puzzling enough, the Lord gave them a king. And if that's not enough, Christ came as king. So legitimately, what is the point of a king? What is the good and proper point of a king? It's the person who takes responsibility for the land. 
It's the person who oversees it, hopefully with judgment and to bring justice and goodness to all that inhabit that land. It's the person who's going to advocate for you, for your benefit. A good king is amazing for the land. And the thing that's amazing about a king too, it's their birthright. It's not a job that they can be fired from <laughs> if you disagree with them. It's his responsibility. We, we say this a lot. I, I know there's a lot of people who want responsibilities in the church, who, a lot of people who desire to be in church leadership. I don't understand y'all. <laughs> I've been very influenced by some wonderful elders who have told me that, that leadership really is just responsibility. I have to stand before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, responsible for what happens, the words that are shared, for what we tolerate and what we don't. That, that's ultimately, as a pastor, I believe what I, I have a responsibility before the Lord on your behalf. That means that, that, that if there's sin that we tolerate, if we say, oh, it's not that bad, it's just a little bit of gossip, it's just a little bit of greed, you know, like, oh, there's, there's worse pastors, there, there's, there's worse people out there than that. If we make space for sin, Amen. I believe I'm responsible for that. Amen. A good king, a good overseer has this responsibility. Thank God he is the good shepherd. Thank God he is the good king. Because I, I will do my best. I will stand before him. I will not be perfect. But he is the good king. Let's dig in on this vineyard imagery. What do farming and medicine have in common? I don't know much about either one. But <laughs> from my amateur experience, there's a few things that I know. So much of what we do for plants and so much of what we do to bring healing to our bodies is that we just remove the bad things and let God's design take over. Got cancer, cut it out, chemo, you know, and allow the body to heal you're growing a garden, remove the rocks, you know, remove the, the, the pests and, and all those things and let the garden grow. These things happen kind of on their own nature. This is 1 Corinthians 3. What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters it is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. This belief that we own this gift of life, that we somehow deserve it, that we somehow have earned this, is forgetting that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's the one who makes things grow. He's the one who brings life. He's the one who has an ordered system, which when done well, shows off the fruit of the vineyard as nothing else, which allows there to be rejoicing in those walls, which are, allows things to be healthy as they should be. I talked about parables being simple, and this really is a simple truth. It's the Lord's. <laughs> we could spend all of our lives actually struggling with this belief that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We could actually still argue, it's mine though, but I'm, this is my life, that the breath is in my lungs and, and this is what I want to do with my days and, and all this stuff. We can struggle against this when this is exactly what it's telling us. So here's the hard, the hard word here. We're doing violence against God. I don't want to be too metaphorical here because Christ suffered very real violence. 
For the apostles and the prophets, it was very real violence. And I don't use this scripture lightly, but this is Hebrews 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a hard parable because it causes us to look at ourselves. Not as silent observers on the sideline, but of those who have to, re to reconcile our lived lives and the ways of the kingdom of God. God gave us a system of how it can be fruitful, on how it can multiply, on how things can work well when he cares for his people and whenever we share and whenever we're loving as he's called and commanded us to be. And what do we do? In violence, we turn away from the laws of that land. We turn away from the, the message of grace and peace. And we take from our brothers and sisters. We hoard up for ourselves wealth. We, we turn our, our blind eye to injustices. When it's time and time again, if you read the prophets, it's always like, how can you ignore the poor? <laughs> how can you ignore the, the, the plight of my people? How are you still harvesting all this wealth when there's people starving amongst you? God has called out for justice, for mercy, for love. And we say, but the ways of this world make a lot of sense. But you have, you've been gone a while. You know, maybe you don't know how bad it is. The, 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 the 60s were a kind of wild time. You know, like, like, like it really changed society. Like maybe you don't know about the internet and, and how it's kind of democratized this information. You, you, you don't quite get it any longer. We are so prone to doing violence against God, and I'm afraid we don't even recognize it. I confess I know the law. I know the temptation to think it's not so bad. To think I'm in control of this little bit of sin that I'm tolerating. No one ever starts off a, a New Year's resolution saying, you know, if I try really hard in a year, I could destroy my marriage through pornography. Nobody tries and says, you know, if I, if I work my hardest this year, I could be addicted to alcohol. I could be such a workaholic this year that my kids don't even remember what I look like. Nobody starts their years off with this plan, but we, we adjust to the rhythms of this world. We give ourselves to this, not because we hope for it, but because we tolerate just this little bit. And then all of a sudden, we're tending to this. We're trying to take for ourselves because we've said no to the ways of God and we said yes to the ways of this world. We, we confuse what we're growing in this garden. Sin is death. Sin takes a toll. Watch the ministries implode left and right around the world when they forget this. The Lord will judge his people, and he will judge his ministries more than any others. No minister, no Christian is beyond this lesson. Because I'm afraid that if we're not growing in humility, we're growing in arrogance. I get these glimpses from time to time which remind me how devastating, how nasty, how despicable sin is. And we act like it's nothing. We act like we can tolerate it. We act like, oh, if, if we're a better person, we can just 
speak forgiveness and, and ignore sin. Sin is devastating. It harms our children. It harms our souls. It harms the most precious, the most vulnerable. Greed, lust, sloth. And it's wounds, and we are the walking wounded because we've chosen the ways of the world instead of the ways of the kingdom. We forget that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The tenants had an absentee landlord. They were doing the work, and they thought it was justifiable, their greed, their selfishness. They wanted that inheritance. The ironic part, we're going to stay in Matthew for this. Chapter 25, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. They chose the ways of the king. <laughs> they loved each other. They, they fed them. They clothed them. They visited them in jail. And so what do they get? Here's your inheritance. Take it. You don't have to fight for it. You don't have to kill for it. Take your inheritance. And they're like, I'm not a part of your family. He's like, yes, you are. <laughs> this is your inheritance. We fight trying to claim something for ourselves when the Lord is trying to give it to us. And yet we're fighting against him. We're fighting because we think that's the way the world has taught us that we have to be. That I can't be generous or I won't have anything. I, I, I've got to work my hardest or I'm not going to have anything. And we fight for these things when the Lord's table is set for us. The Pharisees didn't know God. They didn't know his ways. They assumed something about him based on themselves. I started off asking you, what's your threshold? What's your threshold for greed? What's your threshold for gluttony, for sloth? At what point do you justify it? Do we recognize that that sin is doing violence against God? The parable ends with this. I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. We can rail against these systems that we can't game. And I watch the kids' soccer games. I, I watch college football. I'm in the church's fantasy football league. You know, half the fun is complaining about the refs. <laughs> Bad calls. I want to be clear. The broken systems of this world are best served when men and women of godly character step up and take responsibility and bring change. Good kings are few and far between, but what a blessing to land it is whenever they reign. So this isn't a defense of the status quo. But what systems are we fighting? Fight against the broken systems of this world. Don't fight against God. We can't argue that our sin isn't bad. We can't insist that others are worse than us. So it's okay. We can't argue that the good we've done outweighs the bad. You can't argue that we've learned more and we know more than others. Because when we do those things, we find that we're actually fighting against God. We're fighting against grace and peace itself. We're fighting the wrong battles because we think we're trying to justify ourselves when Christ has always said, I will justify you. Don't choose the systems of this world. Come choose my systems. Come choose grace and peace. It's the Israelites scrambling to collect manna, not trusting that it'll be there tomorrow. It's the Pharisees asserting themselves and their understanding between God and his people. There's still a lesson for us. There's a lesson for me. 
that I, Josh Pavel, in my greed and my pride, I fight for myself to make a home, to make a name, a legacy, an inheritance for my kids, that I fight in accordance for logic and reason with the ways of this world. And when I do that, I'm fighting against God. This isn't an abstract teaching. This is a look at how I order my days, how I work in my day job. God is good. His ways are good. His ways are not our ways. So hearing that, I want to leave you. Can you come back up? I want to leave you with the reading of another well-known parable. I'm going to try to do the Jesus mic drop thing. (laughs) This is a parable for you to read, to mull over, to wrestle with. I believe it applies to what we're talking about. We'll have a call for ministry. We'll be able to, to pray for those who need it and all that sort of stuff. But allow these words to kind of settle in your soul. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash.